A couple summers ago, my family and I lost my grandmother. She loved Jesus into her 90s. She had her wits about her till her death. And she was among the most stubborn ladies that you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, she had long ago, thankfully, before this had happened, before she passed away, asked me to preside over her funeral. And so I was doing so, and halfway through my little, my little sermon, my little eulogy, I asked everyone to raise their hands if they've ever heard my nana stubbornly share her conviction that Jesus will return, Jesus will return before I die. That was her conviction. So everyone, in the, everyone there, all her friends and family gathered, if they'd ever heard Nana say that, and nearly everyone raised their hand as they smiled and they remembered the life of my grandmother. And after nearly every person raised their hand with a smile, I, I looked at the casket and I said, Nana, you were wrong. And I just thought, I sort of ad hoc then added, you know, I've never dared say that to you in person. I've always been a little too afraid <laughs> to actually say that to your face. And it's only now I can say that. We all sort of just had a, a, a big laugh about it. It was among the most purest moments of sort of humor and joy I ever remember experiencing. And the reason I think it was such a, a pure moment was because we were doing what the Bible tells us to do, and that is to lament. We, we, were, we were grieving well for her and for the loss that we were all experiencing. I've often been told, I've thought, I've even sang that the only way to be joyful again is to get past the grief. Get past the grief as soon as possible. The, the joy will come in the morning. It will come later. You just have to sort of get through the grief, but the Bible expresses a different kind of truth that, that joy need not be found after grief, but with Jesus in the midst of it. Joy can be experienced in Jesus as we lament our loss to him. And that's the message in a nutshell this morning, that, that joy can be experienced in Jesus as we lament any kind of loss to him. Not after, but even as we do so. Lamenting is what I've come back from my holiday to preach about. <laughs> Not because I had a really bad, really bad time away, like a bad National Lampoon's vacation away, where everything went wrong, and I got lost a bunch of times, you know, and just made a fool of myself in some significant way, although some of those things did happen. Uh, but because while away, it really hit me that so many of us are experiencing some kind of loss. Here at home, but also abroad. I'm going to come back to some examples of that later. The reality is that in Jesus, God didn't promise to sort of rescue us out of sorrow for this lifetime. He didn't, he didn't promise to rescue us from grief, to rescue us from trouble. In fact, he candidly tells any who would wish to follow him that in this world, you will have trouble. You will have it. So when you turn on the TV and you see people say that God only wants to give you blessing, that he only wants to make you happy, that he only wants to give you the things that you associate with a happy life and lifestyle, they're forgetting the words of Jesus that actually in this world you will have trouble. It's interesting, guys. Do you know that the last maybe half dozen generations are really unique in our history in the way that they view pain, that they view grief? Every other documented society in history has had a meaningful way of integrating pain into their life, of understanding how pain works to make them whole people, complete people, 
except for our history. Now, they've had different ways of doing this. Some have come from a, a moralistic framework. Some have come from a fatalistic framework or a transcendent framework or a dualistic framework. It doesn't really matter. It's only really been the last hundred years or so that we've viewed pain, sorrow, suffering, purely and only as an interruption to life. Not part of life, but as an interruption to our life. So actually, we are the weird ones. Not people of the past. We are the weird ones. Have any of you here ever attended one of our uh, Good Friday services, our Tenebrae services over the last few years? Raise your hand if you have. Just a few of you. And it's, for some reason, it's understandable why, because the way we advertise it and the way the service actually goes, which is we come together to mourn and reflect and consider the death of Christ, and we sing songs in a mournful fashion. There are people up on stage wearing black only by candlelight. It's a very sorrowful service, and we dismiss people in silence. And you have to wait 48 hours for Easter Sunday to come and to be all happy again. And it feels weird. It feels weird to sit in our sorrow. But we do that. We leave sorrowful because that's how people who love Jesus left Calvary. In sorrow. They, they waited. They, they went through their pain. Not just seek to alleviate it. But we live in kind of like an ibuprofen age, don't we? Right? You pop a pill, you feel better. By the way, I'm not down on ibuprofen or anything like that. I'm one of these sort of religious right-wingers who says, don't take medicine, don't have ibuprofen. I'm not saying that. Metaphorically saying that we seek the quickest way to alleviate our pain, and that is the age that we live in. Without really ever expressing it to the one who gives life and takes it away. And so God, in his graciousness and his love for us, he actually gives us words to express our pain. The three most common types of psalms in the Old Testament are hymns, thanksgivings, and lament. Hymns reflect on who God is. Thanksgiving psalms reflect on what God has done. And laments express to God sadness and confusion over what we've experienced, or what an individual has experienced. So which among those do you think are most prayed by the church and most sung by the church? Hymns, thanksgivings, or laments? And which ones are most avoided? I can guarantee you, although they constitute most of the psalms, they're laments. We rarely pray them, we rarely sing them. One such lament that we're going to look at today is Psalm 44, written by the sons of Korah. So let's open there. If you have a Bible, open to Psalm 44, and that will be on page 402 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided. We have Bibles in these chair pockets at the middle and ends of these aisles. You're going to want one this morning. Please grab a Bible or hail someone who could pass one to you. And if you don't have a Bible, by the way, please, one of these Bibles, we'd love it to be our gift to you this morning. And as we're going to read this psalm, I want you to imagine someone in the row in front of you, all right? And there actually is probably someone in the row in front of you, unless you're Angie here. Poor Angie's the furthest she could be. But imagine, imagine someone in the row in front of you reciting out loud something they've written in a kind of journal. They've written something down, and they're standing up, and they're, and they're praying it to God. And they actually invite you to look over their shoulder and join in with them. Hey, look at what I have here. Pray this with me. So in a sense, make, make it your prayer also. That's what we get to do in the Psalms. We get to read over their shoulders, as it were. As they, as they make their lament to God, we read over the shoulders and we get to make this lament our own as well as each of us has experienced loss. And that's the beauty 
of the psalm. So let's, let's read this one together. Psalm 44. A mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand, you drove out the nations, but them you planted. In other words, your people you planted. You afflicted other peoples, but your people you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own hand save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. For you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Adorn salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. And through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter, the reviler, at the sound of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, We haven't been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is God's word. And from this psalm, we learn a few things. And what we're going to do is sort of look at this psalm as a, as a framework for how to lament. What do we learn about grieving with God from this psalm? We learn a few things. We learn about the need for God in our grief. We learn about the role of God in our grief. Finally, we learn how to rouse God from our position of grief. So need for God in our grief, role of God, and how to rouse God in our position of grief. The sons of Korah open their lament by coming to recognize their need for God when just being really sad, when when, when experiencing loss and going through grief. So in verses 1 through 4, these psalmists, they cover the distant past of God's coming through, of God saving his people, rescuing them from difficult situations. This is old school history, even for them looking back on how he drove out other nations from the land that God had promised, this really fertile and rich-soiled land called Canaan. 
And it was a pretty big deal because they faced the pressure of conformity. In every land they went in, they faced the pressure of, we should be like these people, maybe they'll like us better. They faced the pressure of people much larger than them. They called them giants. They said the people of this land are much bigger, are much mightier, and yet God was with them. And then the psalmist kind of moves on in verses 5 through 8, and he covers the most recent history of God's people. So he looked at the distant past and now the recent past of how God has come through and saved his people and rescued them. And we're not given many details other than it's clearly a life-threatening battle. Verses 5 through 8. And God comes through again. So the psalmists are remembering this, but what's unique and out of place here is that usually we're calling God's acts of faithfulness when we look back at our lives. Think about when you look back And you start to thank God for things. Why do you do so? Because you're full of heartache. Because you've expressed to God that things aren't going well. Or you've expressed to someone else that things aren't going well. And then you start to heal. And you start to feel encouraged. And you start to feel better when you remember what God has done for you. When you remember that God has been faithful so you can remember he will be faithful again. But something different happens here, doesn't it? Here that's reversed. The psalmist look back on God's faithfulness upon their past and how God has shown his grace all the way through, threaded all the way through their past. Then he complains. And then he he makes this petition before God, asking God to rouse himself. So what is going on here? This is very different. Why does he do this? Well, you notice, I think what's important to notice is all the words of dependence on God. It's not by my bow. It's not by the sword. God did this. We're not going to rely on ourselves to take the land. It was God who did it. I believe what the psalmist is doing, he's applying their need for God to go against giants and their need for God in life-threatening battle. He's applying that to their need for God to grieve, their need for God to be sad. And this is important because there's a tendency to think, especially today, and especially for a lot of us who feel like we just need to tough it out through our grief that we need God for the big stuff. We definitely need God for the, for the so-called giants in our life, for the things that just seem way too big for us to handle. We need God for those life-threatening battles, those life-threatening situations in which we're in danger. But when it comes to grief, I can get through it. We, we tell ourselves, I can, just, I, just, I can get through the experience of this loss. I just need to tough. Why, why talk it out when I can just tough it out? We don't believe in all that therapy stuff. We don't believe in expressing our emotions oftentimes. The psalmist says, no, we need to go to God to lament what has been lost. And that's the reason, guys, that I'm I'm preaching on lament this morning. Because we are all in one of And I mean, when I say all, I don't mean just here at the Hartwell Theater. I don't just mean those who are with us this morning. I don't just mean K-Man. I mean humanity. We are experiencing a significant loss. And we see it, right, when we read the news. We see what's going on around us. The loss of life itself. The loss of life as we expected it would go. Or the loss of what's been. The loss of our past. Especially the loss of life itself. So when I was on holiday, I was traveling in the U.S., I even got to visit uh, the nation's capital there, Washington, D.C. And more than any other time, I've gone back six summers to the U.S. And, and five of those times to Washington, D.C., the, the grief was palpable. Uh, violence, 
motivated by prejudice, has, has just racked the United States. Orlando's nightclub massacre, maybe you heard of this. A racial profiled act of violence in Louisiana, another one. A racial response in Dallas of the targeting of police officers. And then again, the same thing happens in Louisiana. All prejudicial and racially motivated. And I saw my, my friends, my family, people I, I enjoy normally visiting with, everyone had this sense of despondency at the state and future of what's happening to this, my nation of origin. And I know that's just one origin. That's just my nation of origins. We all have our own nation of origin. So I'll mention some examples of those as well, like Nice, France, where on Bastille Day, 84 people were run over or hurt. And I say hurt because I know some of our kids are in the service this morning, so I want to be a little bit mild in the way I express things here. Syrian refugees continue to look for places to live while European nations find justification to refuse entry. And the massive, massive, and, and very important nation of Turkey, because of where it's located, there's an all-out witch hunt going on, sort of out of nowhere, as 21,000 teachers have been removed from their jobs, 6,000 military personnel arrested, nearly 1,500 judges and prosecutors have been arrested as their president has just gone paranoid. Two days ago in Egypt was the third round within a month of extremists torching the home of Christians, just in, in big city blocks just to the ground. So we're experiencing this loss. And I wonder, do we care? While I was in the U.S., I, I listened to an African-American gentleman who was referring to the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis. And when God confronts Cain about the absence of his brother, where's your brother? Cain says, I, I don't know. A- am I my brother's keeper? He gets defensive. And the reason this man was bringing it up He was making the point that people don't want to be troubled about their brother's loss. They don't want to be troubled. And he said, like, when I go and I speak to white people, even in church, I feel like they don't want to be bothered. I feel like they don't want to hear about loss. Loss that I'm experiencing, my family's experiencing, my community is experiencing. And friends, we all need to be troubled at the loss of life. People made in God's image need lamenting. All of us can lament that, but we can lament more than that. Some of us, we need to lament the loss of life that we expected. Maybe it's the marriage that we have and everything we expected in our marriage and it's fallen far short of what we've expected. We need to lament that. Or maybe it's the marriage that hasn't yet come your way. You need to lament that. The children who've now grown up or the children you've never been able to conceive, we need to lament that. A job that hasn't fulfilled on its promise, or the friend who grew distant or even just disinterested. We need to lament that. But also, lamenting the loss of life as it was our health, our home, our happiness. Maybe for you it's your health. Your, your body isn't what it was. You're, and because of that, you're staring a very different present and future right in the face. You need to lament that. Maybe it's where you're from, your home, whether it's from, you're from Cayman, and you're watching conservative values dilapidate all around you. The place you grew up in is not, no longer the place this is. Or you hail from the mothership across the pond, and, and Brexit has you staring down a future without a truly united kingdom, perhaps. And maybe that's something that you need to lament. Our tendency, guys, with lament, lamentation is just to deal with it. 
What's past is past. You've got to move on. You've got to get past it. It's not going to change what's happened. And the psalmists remind us, as significant as is your giant or a life-threatening battle, is going to God to express your anger, your frustration, your sadness over legitimate losses in your life. We need that to be complete again. But you have rejected us. You've disgraced us. You've not gone out with enemies. You've turned back, turned us back from our foe. Those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and scattered us among the nations. What happens when we don't give that kind of language to our sadness? What happens when we don't lament our losses? But a number of psychologists and, and people who are very experienced in this, and they say typically you go in one of four directions. You will emotionally explode. You will physically break down. You'll give in to addictive behavior. Or you'll start to contemplate suicidal thoughts. If you don't do anything with your grief, one of those things will eventually happen. Many people scoff and say, well, you know, lamenting, it's a cathartic waste of time that therapists and psychologists have just made up. And yet, it's what we see our Savior do. It's what we see Jesus do. He laments over the people he came to save. You might remember that moment in Matthew 23 where Jesus, having talked about the end times, having talked about judgment to come, he just takes a moment looking out upon the city to lament over Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I've, how I've longed, longed to gather your children like a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you would not have it. And he mourns and he laments. Now, does that prayer that Jesus gives, does that lament to, to his father do anything? Does it accomplish anything? No. Those people do stay stubborn to Christ. In fact, they are the ones who put Christ to death. It doesn't help them. It helps him. And that's what lamenting does. It doesn't necessarily help others, but at least helps us. And so the sons of Korah lament in verses 9 through 22 with one big complaint. And here we learn, secondly, the role of God in our grief. We learn that God is a listener. He listens to our grief. And we learn the psalmist, and we can address God as the cause of our grief. Now, many of us will hear these kinds of words. You have sold our people for a trifle. You have made them the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword. You've made us a laughingstock. And we think, I can never approach God like that. I can't approach God with blame. I just, it's so indecent. It feels so wrong. It feels so untidy. <laughs> And yet, here are such words, inspired by God through the psalmist, and here for us, included in the Holy Scriptures for us to pray. They're meant to be here for us to actually pray back to God. I heard a really, really good Bible-based Christian counselor named Dan Allender. He, he, he once visited our class, and I remember him saying to us, asking us point play, we were kind of a small class in this uh, counseling 101 deal. We are in this practicum, in this lab, and he said, who is it? To whom do you vocalize your most intense and even irrational anger? Like, who is that for you? We all sort of thought about it, and none of us had the guts to say who it was. And he followed up with another question. He said, would you, would, you, would you express that kind of frustration with someone who could fire you? Or with someone who could sort of kick you out and remove you from an important relationship? Or shun you? 
Like, no, I, that's not. You, it's, he, why is that? Because you don't trust them. You don't believe they could endure the depths of your pain and sorrow and frustration. You don't believe they can handle it. So you don't share it with them. But the one who hears your lament and even more bears the lament against them is paradoxically the one you most deeply and wildly, I remember him using that word, you, the person you most wildly trust is the one who will hear you and even bear the anger and frustration. Those of you who are married, you've likely experienced this. You've probably borne the worst that your spouse has ever shown to someone. They don't necessarily show it in public, but in private, you sometimes feel like they're garbage can. And sometimes we have to step back and remember to ourselves the silver lining there. That's actually, that's because she trusts me. That's because he trusts me. That he can't, she can't show this side to anyone else, this, this frustrated side, this sad side, this mournful side. And so we, this is why we see lamenting to God, even against God, because it's something he desires. He's willing to bear your blame because that means he gets to bear your trust. And there's no more precious gift we can give to God than our trust in him, than our willingness to go to him, not to suppress it, not to tell our best friend, but to go to him with anger, with frustration, with sadness, with our mourning. Now, before we go to God with blame, usually we ought to be self-suspicious. This is an important point. We ought to be examining our lives, our, our rebellion, our giving our hearts to other gods. And that's typically what's really causing our grief and our sorrow. In those cases, a very good father is, is giving to us the consequences of our actions to rouse us, to wake us up from sin. He's almost saying to us the very last verses of these psalms, hey, Ryan, wake up. You're sinning. You're messing up. You're rebelling against me. And oftentimes that's what's causing us grief and that's what's causing us frustration. But there are certain losses and sorrows for which there is no explanation You've genuinely examined your heart and the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted you, hasn't said, hmm, there's where the problem is. It's a mystery. And the psalmist explains it. Look at verses 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? By which they mean, would not God discover this to us? But God, maybe a better way to translate would be uncover this to us, when he let us know, if our sin was the cause of these military defeats and the inability to protect our borders, you let us know, right, God? We see that you do this throughout history, and yet God doesn't let them know. It remains a mystery, the suffering and the pain they're experiencing. And so the psalmist doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back. Six times he says, it's you, 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 you have done this, Lord. And that's actually the right instinct. If we trust that God's in control of every part of our lives, then that means he's either authored our sorrow or at least permitted it. And so it's right to go to God in frustration. It's right to go to him first to work out our frustration and anger. He's a God who can handle it. God wants us in our grief to come to him as listener and even as cause. And so we're going to do that in a little bit during our worship. I'm going to lead us in a lament, in a community lament. We're going to silently lament losses in our own lives. But first, a third point here. We also learn here to rouse God from our grief. From our position of grief to rouse God. We see this in verses 23 through 26. Let me read this again. Awake, 
Why are you sleeping? O Lord, rouse yourself. You hear the intensity here, right? Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the Lord. There's still a humility about asking God for help. Notice he's saying, I'm coming to you recognizing you're the only one who can help, and yet I'm coming to you with boldness. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And these verses hint at the greatest news of all, that God has already been roused. He was sleeping. Three days, his body lay lifeless, and he was raised to life, and he ascended into heaven. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, because because God has been roused, because he has come to life, two things become true for you and I. Number one, that Jesus always hears and personally delivers every one of your prayers. Jesus always hears and personally delivers every one of your prayers. The man who lived out every sorrow, who endured every loss, he's the one who understands you and he brings every prayer before the Father. So that's why Jesus, while he's on earth, tells parables about bothering judges and knocking on friends' houses in the middle of the night to talk about how we can pray and keep on bothering God with our prayer, with our lament, with our trouble. He knows he will will rise from death and he will be the one to bring that to the Father and says, listen. Listen to what Neil is praying. Listen to what Karen is praying. Father, I know what they're going through. Listen. Because Jesus is risen from death. So we're encouraged to keep on rousing God. And it's become far easier because Jesus lives to intercede for us as Hebrews says. Here's the second truth we have because of the resurrection. That for the Christian, no matter your current state, the best is yet to come. The best is always yet to come. No matter how bad things get or good things get, your future is always better as a Christian. Other religions promise consolation. They help you work through pain. Only Christianity promises restoration. Other religions help, help you weep. The gospel helps you weep and promises all the things for which you're weeping will be returned to you. A new indestructible body. No more sorrow. And so we can still laugh through tears, smile through pain, and rejoice through suffering. I was shooting basketball, shooting hoops one time with a friend, uh, a not-yet-Christian friend of mine. We were on this team together, and he didn't know that I was the pastor of Sunrise. He knew I went to church there. And he said, man, I can't believe you're a pastor. Like, you really enjoy laughter and humor. (laughs) And you're a pastor. And I knew this was a moment And I just said, the Holy Spirit, give me a word to say about that. I said, man, you know what? It's easy to laugh when you know you're going to live forever. And it just gave us a moment to talk about Jesus. And that's true for every Christian. Now, I no doubt, I watch way more TV than I should. And one of the shows I record and watch from time to time is The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Um, if you don't know him, it's a, it's a late night TV show and Colbert isn't quite as goofy or fun loving as Jimmy Fallon, but he is at least as thoughtful. And when this man was, was 10 years old, his father and two of his brothers were killed in the same plane crash. Stephen was only a child still at home with his mom in the years immediately following. And last year, GQ, I read this article, came through on my uh, Yahoo feed. They did this interview with Colbert on how he dealt with these losses and not become angry and bitter. you imagine losing your father and two of your siblings in an instant, 10 years old? And here's what he said. 
He said, I was raised in a Catholic tradition. And that's my context for my existence, is that I am here to know God, to love God, to serve God, that we might be happy with each other in this world and with him in the next. And that makes a lot of sense to me. He said, I I was left alone a lot after dad and the boys died. It was just me and mom for a long time. And he said, by her example, I am not bitter. She was broken, yes. She was broken, but bitter, no. Aubert said that even in his mother's days of just constant grief, she drew on her face the only way not to be, he said, swallowed by sorrow. And in fact, recognized that our, our sorrow is inseparable from our joy. Sorrow inseparable for joy. And it's the only way to understand suffering, he thought. He described this letter that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote. Tolkien wrote also Lord of the Rings, and he wrote this letter. He said, what hard things from God are not also gifts? And Colbert said, I just tried to live by that day by day. And his eyes kind of got teary, and he said, you know, he would be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it, but you still can take everything with gratitude. He said something interesting. He said, I can hold both of those things together. I can finally in my life hold both of those truths together. I don't want this, but I can still be grateful for this. He was 35 before he said he could feel the truth of that. He remember he says, walking down the street, and these two truths, he said, stop me dead. I went, oh my gosh, I'm grateful. And oh, I feel terrible at the same time. Not one day I'll be happy when I get through this grief, but I can be sad and joyful at the same time. And he said, even as he has interviews like this one with GQ, he says, I can feel the gratefulness rise within me because I am giving voice to my sorrow. I'm expressing my grief out loud. And friends, joy can be experienced similarly in Jesus as we lament every loss we have to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much just personally for this psalm, Psalm 44. As I know over the last couple weeks, is I've worked a couple, through a couple sorrows that I've gone through in my own life, a couple sorrows that I've never really grieved. You've helped me grieve to you. You've helped me express frustration and sadness to you. Father, I pray this morning, I think there's a tendency for all of us here, many of us here at least, to be afraid to grieve, to really be afraid to express lament, to sort of go there. And yet, that's what you did, Jesus, both in your ministry and our behalf. You were sad. You were a man of sorrows. And yet, no one lived as joyfully as you, Jesus. Someone who exemplified rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Father, help us experience joy, not after we're sad, but as we lament to you. In our sadness, help us experience a joy that's far richer than just empty laughter or body humor or flippant jokes. Help us lament not only our losses, but the losses of our fellow man, our fellow woman who are made in your images, the injustices in this world. Help us this morning lament well by going to you to express them. In Jesus' name, amen.